0: People who study the Bible do become familiar with it in a number of different ways. They're all Christians, I think, have their favorite passages, and uh, some of them have their favorite books. And when they assess their understanding of the Bible, they tend to do so according to the number of passages um, or books that they're familiar with. For example, Uh, Some people really like the book of Genesis, and other people really like the book of Proverbs or maybe the book of Psalms. Uh, In the New Testament, it might be the Gospel of John or Revelation, or they might be quite taken with the Sermon on the Mount. Other people tend to assess their knowledge of Scripture in terms of the number of verses that they've memorized. And anyone who has known the Lord for some time probably knows more verses uh, than you realize. In fact, it may surprise you if you counted uh, how many verses you can, you can finish if someone just gives you the first couple of words. You could probably finish off those verses on your own. Other people assess their knowledge of the Bible in terms of topics uh, that they have studied. For some, it might be the topic of family Some people really get into parenting passages. It might be the fruit of the Spirit. It might be various emotions that they're dealing with uh, in their life. But by studying verses on a certain topic, they feel that they have a pretty good grasp of that subject biblically. But I think that the most satisfying and useful way to measure our knowledge of Scripture is really in terms of being able to think sequentially through books of the Bible. And I'm saying that because God gave us the Bible by books. He didn't give us uh, you know, the, the Bible by topic. We can look up a topic and, and it's all there in one section. Uh, he gave it to us by books, and we have 66 of them, and every one of them has a primary message from the Lord. So, for example, uh, the book of Genesis means beginnings, and it's named so because it's a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. Uh, is rooted right back in that book. So it's wonderful when you take book by book and unfold the message as God unfolds it in Scripture. And what we've been doing for the past few messages is unfolding the overall message of the first book of the Bible, uh, or the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Matthew. And this is uh, now our fourth message, and uh, we'll have one more after this, and then we'll go back and work our way through those passages individually, and we'll see how each one uh, contributes to that overall message. I want to make sure that we haven't forgotten what we've covered so far, so let's quickly think back to what precedes chapter 14 in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And if you missed any of the previous messages, this is your opportunity to catch up uh, what you might have missed. Remember that this is a book in which the primary message has to do with presenting Jesus of Nazareth as the King of the Jews. The introduction to the book gives us the proof for that in his lineage, because his genealogy will show that he is a royal descendant of David, the greatest king in Israel, and the one with whom God made a covenant and promised that his descendants would always be on the throne of Israel. And then you may remember that the Holy Spirit has designed this book so that after the introduction, uh, you then find stories alternating with teaching. There are five major sections of teaching in Matthew, and we know that because each section ends with basically the same statement, that Jesus finished what he has just been teaching. So it'll say, now when Jesus finished these sayings, or when Jesus had concluded his teaching, or something like that, there are five major sections that will end in that way. Those sections alternate with stories, and the point of the stories and teaching is to substantiate the initial claim that Jesus is the king. So the early stories, chapters 2 to 4, show him as the newborn king who then enters into ministry and begins to preach the message of the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, As he announces that kingdom, the Lord begins to teach people then about the nature of that kingdom. And that brings us to the first major teaching section in the book. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. And it presents to us what is necessary in order to enter that kingdom that he's been preaching about and then what it's like once you're a kingdom citizen. Now, perhaps you also recall that when he finished that sermon, the people's reaction was that he uh, sounded like someone who had authority, someone who had the right to make statements about himself and about that kingdom. Uh, But of course, the question that everybody has when they hear somebody making astounding claims like this is whether or not they can offer any conclusive proof to back it up. And you back up what you're saying with what you do? Well, the next section of this gospel, chapters 8 to 9 then, give us a sample of his miraculous works. And again, the people marvel that he had that kind of authority. This whole sub-theme of authority runs throughout the gospel. Uh, he could say these authoritative things that nobody else had said before, and then he could back it up by performing the most astonishing deeds. I mean, he can heal any kind of sickness. Uh, He can cast out demons. He can even control nature. And the most amazing thing of all, he can actually raise the dead. And people marveled that God had given someone this kind of authority. Now, what happened in that day is precisely what would happen if this took place in the 21st century. He immediately became a very popular figure. Uh, crowds followed him everywhere. So this then presented the need to multiply himself in order to meet all the demands of the people. And that's why in chapter 10 he transfers that same authority including the ability to do miracles to his 12 disciples. And then he commissions them to go throughout that region of Galilee and heal the sick and cast out demons and duplicate not only his miraculous works, but also repeat the same message that he was preaching about the coming of the kingdom. So now you've got 13 people preaching the same message and performing the same miracles, and you would expect that this whole region now would be just swept into the kingdom that he's preaching about. I mean, surely they would all want to be followers of this amazing person. But what actually began to happen at that point was unexpected opposition. Uh, The next section of stories, chapters 11 and 12, are stories that involve various responses to the king, and most of them involve rejection. You remember that even John the Baptist, who uh, had been claiming his messiahship, was confused. And then the Pharisees went so far as to explain this miraculous power as actually having its source in the devil. They committed uh, what our Lord called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because while it was obvious that there was supernatural power at work from the Holy Spirit, they were attributing it to the devil. Uh, throughout my ministry, I've been asked a number of times whether or not somebody has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the only way I know how to respond is just to take them to this passage and explain the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain. Uh, That's what people think. Instead, it's when someone has clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work, but out of their extreme hardness of heart, they refuse to acknowledge it as divine power. And as they, you know, they just grope about for some way to justify their rejection, they then seize upon the explanation that it must be the devil. So blaspheming the Spirit is attributing to Satan what is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the ultimate kind of rejection against the Lord in this passage. And his response then was to give the disciples some insight into what was happening, uh, I mean, how, how can you explain this reaction to a ministry that has just been so phenomenally successful? I mean face it, you know we 're healing every kind of disease, even the demons are subject to us. that's just amazing. what's wrong with these people? Well, our Lord says i 'm going to respond by speaking to them in parables from now on. I mean I mean, you have ears to hear so you. You're going to understand the nature of these stories, but they will not be given understanding because they've rejected the light that they already have. And this teaching, of course, is the third major section of teaching uh, in the book, which is chapter 13, which precedes the chapter that we have turned to today. Now, notice how chapter 13 ends. Verse 53, when our Lord finished his parables on the nature of the kingdom that he was preaching and he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, he uh, then taught in the synagogue. And again, the people marveled, but they marveled because he was a commoner to them. Uh, You know, for over 30 years, he's lived in their midst. You know, they simply knew him as the son of Joseph, the local chippy. He's a local carpenter, you know. So as a result, they simply could not accept that, You know, how could he be the messianic king? Verse 57, so they were offended at him, meaning they took offense at his claims. I mean, who is this guy making these kinds of claims to be king? And so, verse 58, the Lord's response was that he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, at this point, We come to the fourth great section of stories in this gospel, and this is going to run from chapters 14 to 17. So what is the unique contribution of this section to the ongoing message that Jesus is the messianic king? Well, I want to show you the opening story and a phrase that is repeated several times in this section. This is the key. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. This is the murder of John the Baptist, right? the initial prophet who announced that Jesus was king. Uh, Herod Antipas was the ruling authority in that part of Israel, and you remember that he had John beheaded at the request of a little dancing girl. Uh, it's really a horrifying illustration of the extent to which men will fall when they follow the lust of their flesh. So in verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard it, when that news reached him, and here's what I want you to note, he departed from there. Look at verse 22, end of the verse, he sent the multitudes away. Look at chapter 15, verse 21, then Jesus went out from there and departed. Verse 29, Jesus departed from there. Verse 39, he sent away the multitude. And then finally, 16, verse 4, and he left them and departed. Now, I've called your attention to those repeated statements because what takes place at this point is really an odd combination of events. I mean, why do you have all of these references to him sending the crowds away and departing from the spotlight? Well, part of the explanation is that our Lord was still being thronged by people And one reason was because he was not only performing miracles, but he was doing certain miracles that affected more people than any others so far. In chapter 14, after he withdraws from hearing about the beheading of John, the people found out where he was going, and they followed him. In fact, they were in such a hurry to be with him and to experience something from him that they didn't bring any food or any supplies. So while our Lord taught them, as the day went on, he felt compassion for them. Because, you know, they didn't have anything to eat. So what miracle did he perform on that occasion? You all know, right? He took uh, two uh, small loaves, five fish. And you know, these aren't, these aren't uh, big tuna. It's not giant French bread sticks or anything like that. No, these are, these are like sardines and uh, you know a couple of bread rolls. And, uh, and it was the boy's lunch. And the boy gave it to the Lord. And the Lord multiplied that and then he fed over 5,000 men besides women and children. So maybe 10,000 people. And later on, he also fed 4,000 men plus women and children. Now, Matthew doesn't record what John does at this point. But it was after the feeding of the 5,000 that the Lord gave a long teaching session on Himself being the bread that came down from heaven. And the reason for that teaching is given in Matthew's account, which is simply that by now the people were crowding around Him not because they were engaged by his, His message, not because they were ready to give their hearts to him, but because he looked as if he was going to be the answer to all of their physical earthly needs. And just by way of application, if there's any section of Matthew's gospel that applies to much of contemporary Christianity today, it would be these chapters. It would be these miracles. I mean, it's basically the viewpoint That if you follow him, you'll get something from him physically. You get healing. It's gonna mean food. It's gonna be the constant excitement of the miraculous. So, in the discourse that John gives in his gospel, the Lord corrects that. You remember? He says, "Don't, Don't labor for food that perishes. He says, No, I'm the bread of life come down from heaven. I am the food that, that, that your soul really needs. Well, the people didn't like that. They rejected that. They walked away in droves. And so Matthew recounts that he himself would now withdraw. He, he would dismiss the crowds. He would, he would depart. In other words, you have this continual demonstration of who he is on the widest scale possible to as many people as he could reach in the first century. But because of their superficial reaction to what He offered, He increasingly withdrew Himself and He starts now to give His teaching to the disciples alone. Now in that process, we come to chapter 16, verse 13. Our Lord has withdrawn with His disciples far into the north. He's about 40 kilometers above the Sea of Galilee. This is the northernmost part of His earthly ministry. The northernmost city in Israel was Dan, and the Lord takes them to Caesarea Philippi, which is just a few kilometers from Dan. They're now at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon rises uh, 2,800 meters high, about just a little bit taller than uh, Mount Kosciuszko. Mount Hermon is a beautiful snow-capped mountain in a lush region of the country known as the Golan Heights. And Caesarea Philippi is where you find a large spring that forms one of the major sources of the Jordan River. The Jordan, of course, runs north uh, to south, right through Israel, and uh, it feeds the Sea of Galilee, which then uh, leaves the Sea of Galilee and feeds into the Dead Sea, and where it stops, it dies right there, Sea of Galilee, uh, Dead Sea. Well, that spring flows out of a cave in Caesarea, Philippi. And because of the vegetation and the richness of the region, it became a place of pagan worship for many centuries. Uh, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ in Old Testament times, uh, the worship of Baal took place in that region. It was actually named after Baal. Uh, however, when the Greeks conquered that whole territory, they, they renamed the region after their god, Pan. And to this day, uh, the whole it's called uh, Banias, uh, which is an alteration of the word Pan. Pan was the god of terror. He was the god of fright. His name is in our English word, panic. And to this day, in the cliffs outside of that cave where that spring flows, there are these niches that exist where people would honor their gods. They'd put their idols in there. They'd put their gifts in there. I've been there. I've seen it. Uh, and there's a spot there for Pan. There's a spot for his father Hermes. There's a spot for uh, the statue of his goddess Echo, and so on. In fact, on the walls around those niches and outside of them and inside of them, you can see inscriptions of people. Uh, they would donate immense sums of money to honor that particular god. People would come and throw... Uh, offerings into the mouth of that cave uh, in order to honor Pan. And it's into this particular region that our Lord brings the twelve. And then in a very solemn question and answer session, he interrogates them about the popular opinions regarding his identity. He says, look, I want to ask you, who do people say that I, the son of man, am? The disciples, they give all of the current opinions that are floating around. And these opinions are all respectful, right? I mean, uh, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. That was Herod's view. Well, you must be Elijah, one of the prophets, maybe you're Jeremiah. These are all respectful answers. And I do want to point out that right up to the current day, there are many respectful opinions of Jesus that fall completely short. A lot of people will say that he was a good man. Millions will say that he was a prophet. That he went out, he did a lot of good works. Marvelous teacher. Tremendous example. But every one of those opinions is an opinion of unbelief. Because he was identifying himself as the son of man, the universal king prophesied in the Old Testament, while at the same time claiming to be the son of God. So, when they'd offered all of their current opinions, you could imagine that their, their responses kind of going back and forth like you would a group of guys just kind of chatting. Our and... And Lord then comes to the big question that every person must face. I mean, what I really want to know is this, who do you say that I am? Well, in that moment, Peter, who was often the spokesman for the group, maybe he stepped Fourth, maybe he raised himself up, and he looks at this person who is about his same age, about his same height, he's wearing the same kind of clothes, he has the same skin color. He looks at this man, and with all sincerity, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the Lord pronounces a blessing on him, telling him that he's been favored by God the Father in coming to that conviction. You know, people can say those words and do so simply because they've been educated into saying them. Right? People can make a confession like that because they grew up maybe in a nation like ours or their parents are members of a church like this. But when a person has really wrestled with the alternatives, I mean, Baal, Pan, Hermes, God's goddesses of the past, alternate religions, new age, when he's grappled with the alternatives, when he's looked hard at all of the popular opinions that might be highly respectful, and yet they don't rise to the level of a true acceptance of Jesus' claims, when a person thinks through the options, And then when he steps out, in all seriousness, and he says with real conviction, you are the Son of God, they have been the object of a divine work. They are blessed like Peter. Because God the Father has opened their eyes to that reality. This morning, if you confess Jesus Christ from the very depths of your being, If you have that that kind of conviction that no one can take from you. I mean, if you were faced with death for the sake of your confession, you would stick to it. I mean, that only comes from God. That is a miraculous thing. That is not humanly produced simply by intellect or you've reasoned it out or you're emotionally feeling that way. No, this is what the Lord was saying to Peter. And in the midst of that pagan sight, With those options right before them in the niches of that cliff, Peter and the disciples distinguished themselves as the recipients of God's divine work in their lives. And so, from that time, verse 21, Jesus now begins to unfold the next aspect of his ministry to them. They understood this person before them. All right, now the question was okay. Why is he here? What has he come to do? Well, he's been talking about being the king. So how astounding it must have been for them in verse 21, when it says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, but it's not to take the throne. It's not to get rid of the Romans. But it is to suffer many things from, of all people, the religious leaders. From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And as you know, Peter can't handle that in the next verses. But from that point on, Jesus now begins to systematically reveal to them the nature of his work on the cross. You can see repeated references to this. Look at chapter 17, verse 9. Right at the end of the verse, it says, the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Look at verse 12. The Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Uh, Verse 22, 23, same chapter, end of the verse. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him. And the third day, He will be raised up. You'll see it again in chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. There's other references as well. But you should know that Caesarea Philippi is the first time in the ministry of our Lord when he clearly states that he's going to be crucified and that it's going to happen at the hands of religious leaders. But then he will rise from the dead and his resurrection is included in every one of those predictions. So what's the nature of chapters 14 to 17? Well, you've got his greatest miracles in the sense that they uh, affect the most number of people, right? The biggest crowds. But at the same time, you have this systematic withdrawal from these people and then his introducing to the disciples the next level of revelation that they have to accept now that they're clear about who he is. Well, just as you would expect, chapter 18 then is a section of teaching and it consists of just one chapter. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And his response on this occasion was an object lesson. He took a small child, verse 3, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's our Lord talking about here? Well, if you were wondering about what it would take to enter the kingdom and what it involves, among other things, it does involve a total change of your spirit. That's what he was illustrating on this occasion. You have to be converted by becoming like a little child, which verse 4 explains as being someone who is willing to humble himself. I mean, that's the way little children are. Uh, Children are small in the presence of adults. They know that it's not possible for them to overpower an adult. They are are humble in that sense. They yield themselves quite willingly in most cases. And our Lord was saying that in order to get into the kingdom, you would have to be, be humble. You would have to have this kind of humility on your part a humility that is willing to listen and respond to him and to come to him just like a child came to him with complete trust. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule with kids, you know. But in general, they, they, they really are not cynical. They're not skeptical. If someone calls them, they're kind to them as Jesus was kind to them. The little children just come. They they believe and accept people completely at face value. Uh, you know, in fact, we have to teach them right to be more cautious about uh, you know, stranger danger. Adults they don't know because they'll just go to somebody, have a piece of candy, they'll come and get it, right? So, in contrast to all of that rejection that we have seen from the adults who heard Jesus, and all of those wrong motives to feed us and do a miracle for us and. Provide for all of our needs, and if you do that, hey, we'll call you Elijah, we'll call you Jeremiah, we'll call you whatever, as long as we get what we want. Well, in contrast to that, the little children, they just came running up to him. They just, they just accepted him. They were happy because he was such a kind and a gracious person. I mean, this is the spirit the Lord is calling for in people. And with that introduction to his teaching, the rest of chapter 18 is basically an explanation now of what relationships are going to be like between people who are in the kingdom together. It's teaching on kingdom relationships. Uh, One of the major aspects, for example, verse 21, is this forgiving spirit between people who are in the kingdom. And when you get to chapter 19, we read verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. There's that formula again. Remember that? You'll see it for the last time. In chapter 26, verse 1, we saw it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. We saw it following chapter 10 when he commissioned the 12. We saw it at the end of chapter 13, the kingdom parables. Now it's at the end of his teaching on relationships between people who are in the kingdom. And we'll see it for the last time in chapter 26. But at the end of that teaching section now, we come to the next section of stories And these will run from chapters 19 to 23. And it's a particular instructive section for us because these are stories, and I struggled a bit finding a term that would encompass it all, but I think they're stories that are all about kingdom entrance. It's stories about people's responses, their rejection, the possibility of reward, their reception and non-reception, even resistance to the king and their entrance into his kingdom. In chapter 19, verse 1, it basically begins with a geographical change in the ministry of Jesus Christ. When he finished the words of chapter 18, it says, He departed from Galilee, which is far in the north, and he came to the region of Judea, beyond Jordan. Now, what capital city is in Judea? Jerusalem, right? So he's moving these men down into the region now where he is going to engage in his final public ministry. And then he's going to go into that capital city, and that's where he's going to suffer as he's been telling his disciples. So he's moved them from Caesarea Philippi in the far north. They've come down through Galilee where the Sea of Galilee is, finally further south into Judea. And it's there in verse 3, that some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, as was, as was their habit, right? And they tested him. And Matthew presents a sample of what the Lord was facing there. You have their particular response. But then you have the response that he was looking for in people, verse 13. Then little children were brought to him. And in verse 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And again, he's just, Illustrating this concept of who will enter into the kingdom. It's this contrast between the questioning, argumentative Pharisees who want to, you know, split some hair of the law with him, and the children who just come. For if such is the kingdom, the Lord says. And just by way of a quick application, how many people in history do you think have failed to respond to Jesus over some supposed intellectual obstacle Uh, you know for you got friends like this right Uh, it's something they've always wondered about some supposed contradiction some teaching jesus gave they never really understood And okay now they're going to hold this up as their whole reason why they won't come and respond to him maybe it's maybe it's one of his claims Uh, maybe they don't understand his position on the law uh, maybe it's because he said, love your enemies, and that's a stumbling block to them. And the, and the whole time, they're justifying their refusal to come to him, because there's some intellectual issue for them. But then you have other people, and they see in Jesus exactly who he represented himself to be. You know, they hear his teaching, they just accept it at face value, and they say, man, that's for me. I need this guy. They, they come like little children. This whole section begins with that contrast in responses. And the contrast is deepened if you look at the next story. Because this now is a story of outright rejection. It begins in verse 16. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Now, in this story, I want you to see four expressions that we've noted in the past. Let's put them all together. Verse 16, now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have, here's the first expression here, eternal life. Here comes a man, he wants eternal life, he's thinking that there's something he has to do in order to get it. Well, our Lord says uh, to him, uh, keep the commandments. And, uh, And then he names some of them. And some people still think, right, that they'll be saved from their sins if they keep doing that. Well, the young man really thought that he'd done that. Verse 20, uh, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? But of course, he didn't understand what everybody who tries to keep the Ten Commandments doesn't understand. You know He's thinking entirely on a surface level. I've never murdered anybody. Uh, I've never stolen anything. You know, nothing that really mattered, at least. Uh, I've never said, given any major lies. I'm you know, generally pretty truthful. Don't worship any idols. You know, they're thinking entirely on the surface. That's how the young man was thinking. So the Lord tests him. You know, since he said, oh, I've kept all, all the commandments from my youth, he's pretty confident about that. The Lord says, all right, let's try you out on this one. He says, I want you to take everything you have and sell it. And whatever you receive, I want you to distribute it to the poor and then come back and follow me. See, the Lord's testing him. And one thing he was clearly testing him about was the object of his worship. And then he was trying to show him that at his roots, he really did have a covetous spirit. So we not only broke the first commandment, There are no other gods before me. But he also broke the last commandment. He was a covetous man. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowfully. So look at verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter. Here's the second expression to note, the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, and here's an illustration for you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think of a great big camel with two humps. Let's get a two-humped camel, even a one-humped camel. And try to squeeze him through the eye of a a sewing needle. Okay, Well, it's going to be easier for that to happen than for a rich man to enter, here's the third expression, the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. Why? Well, because they clearly understood he was talking about an impossibility. I mean, if it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to get into the kingdom, then here's their question, who then can be, here's the fourth expression, saved? So what did the rich man want? Eternal life. What did Jesus say? Well, it's very difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a man like that into the kingdom of God, which is the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. And what's he really referring to? Well, the disciples understand it, that he's talking about getting saved. You see, he's talking about entrance into heaven, into the kingdom. And so verse 26, But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible. Remember that. But don't ever forget the last line. That's what you've got to remember. I mean, here we are. right? We're sitting here today. We're all at many different spiritual states. Maybe somebody is here. Maybe somebody in your family. Maybe a friend that you have is lost. For years you've been thinking, I, just, I cannot see how they're ever going to get saved. Maybe you think of that about yourself. In fact, maybe you've read this story about this man who wasn't willing to do what Jesus asked him to do, to get rid of his God of wealth in order to really embrace Jesus as Savior. And you're thinking, well, you know, if that's the test, if that's what Jesus asked me to do, I just don't think I could get saved either. Well, you're right. Because the fact is, it takes such a change Down at the roots of your being, it's only God who can initiate it. It's like Jesus said to the disciples if any if, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Well, that you know, the most basic instinct in every one of us is the instinct of self preservation. So Jesus said the first requirement. In order to follow me, you got to cut cross grain to the most basic instinct you have. You got to deny yourself. And somebody says, Well, you know, on what level does he mean that we should do that? I mean, how extreme does my self denial have to be? I try this on for size sell everything you have, you know, get the proceeds, distribute it to the poor. You know, Go down there, hands and feet. Give it all out to the people that come there. Okay, now you can come and follow me. Now clearly the Lord is not teaching that absolute poverty is necessary to be saved. But what He was teaching is that we need a radical, total, demonstrable change in our spirit. We have to become like a little child. You have to humble yourself. You've got to be willing to get rid of your competing idols. We cannot come for salvation while at the same time clutching onto our sins. Now, of course, we can't clean ourselves up before we come because then nobody would be saved, right? But thank the Lord that he can work a change of mind in our hearts so that our spirit is genuine and willing when we come. I mean, he can, he can make us willing to say, Lord, I am ready to part with everything. I am prepared to love You supremely above Father, above Mother, above, above Brother or Sister, above my own life also. Because You are the Son of God. Because it's Your salvation that I need. Friends, only God can work that Spirit in a person. And when He does, many of you know the conviction. You know the miraculous work of the Lord in your life. You know the power that He gives to truly repent. So at this point in His ministry, the Lord is experiencing these contrasting responses to Him, including the outright rejection to His claims as being the King and of His kingdom. And following that, you have a whole section he begins to look far ahead to what people who enter his kingdom are going to receive. Their eternal rewards. Now, that makes sense because he just dealt with the man to whom he said had to sell everything in order to follow Jesus. So, I mean, where does that leave me in the future? That's what Peter wanted to know. All right? Verse 27. Peter answered and said to him, See, We have left all and followed you. I mean, we've done what this guy couldn't do. Therefore, what shall we have? And at that point, running right into chapter 20, our Lord basically talks about what it's going to be like in that day when we stand before him and we are given our reward, which is primarily our experience of eternal life. If you look at the end of chapter 20, verse 20, this is so exciting to the apostles, right? They're so excited about this, that two of them actually come and ask for the two seats in the kingdom. And they get so worked up about it that the Lord actually has to turn the whole thing on its head. Because he says to them, verse 27, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve And to give his life a ransom for many. So you can see how he brings it back full circle. I mean, yes, there is reward. We've all been assured by Scripture that there is nobody who's going to leave their house or their lands or their mother or their father or their brother or their sister who is not going to receive full compensation in the afterlife that is far greater. Right? I mean, we do believe in laying up our treasure in heaven. But I want you to know that the prophet motive will not bring a person to true submission at the foot of Jesus Christ. And you have to reckon with the fact that our calling is to be a servant for the Lord. Not somebody who goes around with a feeling of entitlement as a child of God. And that brings us now to the next few stories. And What have we seen so far? Well, he came south into Judea. He's been tested by the Pharisees. We've got these contrasting illustrations of people's responses. And he deals with this whole issue of reward and position in the kingdom. Right, the end of chapter 20, running into chapter 21, you now have a mixed reception of Jesus into the wider community. And it begins with two remarkable examples of people who respond with conviction to his identification as the Messianic king, you have kingly recognition. Look at chapter 20, verse 29. It's the story of the two blind men. How do they address him? End of verse 30. Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Verse 31. The multitudes warned them they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. they recognized recognize their king. See? Chapter 21, when they approach Jerusalem in the Mount of Olives, you got the triumphal entry. The crowds recognize the king. This is in fulfillment. Verse 5, a prophecy in Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Well, how are we going to know who he is? How are we going to identify him? Well, he's not going to come like an ordinary ancient Near Eastern monarch might come. But lowly sitting on a donkey. Not even that. It's a colt, the foal of a donkey. In verse 9, the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying in the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means saved now. Hosanna to the Son of David. Saved now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Matthew is really showing us that there were genuine believing people, like the two blind men, and that the popular crowds—those who had come down from Galilee, those who had seen his miracles—they were willing on this occasion to throw palm branches before him and to chant, "Save now!" to confess him as the Son of David. But in verse nine, uh, verse ten, the crowds—now you got the people from Jerusalem, right? They're saying, well, who's this? Because nearly all of the Lord's popular ministry to this point has been in Galilee. And they don't have any ABC News. They're not watching it on Sky News down there. They don't know what's going on up there in Galilee. So the Galilean crowd said, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And in verse 12, the Lord now sees an occasion to exercise His kingly authority and cleanse the temple. So you talk about taking authority into your own hands and the result, verse 15, was that the religious leaders who saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And in verse 23, we now move into this major section where his authority is questioned and challenged with finality. Now let me show you how this works and then we'll be done. Verse 23 is a reference that we noted way back in chapter 10, verse 1, which is part of this sub-theme on his authority, or his kingly rights. Well, here it's being exercised again, and it says, now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority, there's the key word, by what authority... Are you doing these things? I mean, who gave you this authority? Now, I want to ask you a question. For about three to three and a half years, our Lord has been engaged in public ministry that was undeniably miraculous. So how would you expect Him to respond when they're asking Him, well, what is your authority? I mean, who gave you this authority to cleanse the temple?" Who gave you the authority to accept these children crying out, son of David? Well, what our Lord does is what he often does with us when we deny clear truth. He comes back to them and he says, well, let me ask you a question. Let me take you all the way back to John's baptism. This is before I began my ministry. Let's go back to the first revelation you received. The baptism of John, where was it from? Did it come from heaven? That's one one option, right? Or did it come from men? That's the other option. And the Pharisees begin to think like you do when you're playing chess. Uh, You begin to predict the moves and you begin to think about the position you'll be in if you make a certain move. So they think to themselves, all right, now, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you receive it? Because if he did receive it, remember John was the one who pointed to Jesus and said, well, he's the one. So bad move. We don't want to make that move. Well, what's the other option? Now, we could say from men. But if we do that, you know, the crowds, they kind of hold John as a great prophet who is a martyr. They're going to be angry with us. Bad move. We can't make that one either. So they take the third option. They respond very piously, well, it's a secret. We can't tell you. you know, We're not moving. Well, you know, in chess, when you, when you don't make a move, you forfeit the game, right? That's what happens. Our Lord's response to them at the end of verse 27 is this. All right, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. However, I'll tell you a couple of stories. First story, verses 28 and following. A man had two sons. He said to one of them, "I right, go work for me today. And the son said, I'm not going to do it. But then later on, he changed his mind and he went to work. He went to the second son. He said, look, I want you to work today. And the boy said, sure, I'll do it. But then he never went. So the Lord said, okay, what do you think? Which of these two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first, or the one who said he wouldn't go, but then he actually went. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before you. Why? Well, because of how they ultimately responded to the preaching of John. Right? They were the second guys. Let me tell you another story. Verse 33 there was a certain landowner. He planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. When the time came, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants. They actually beat one, they killed one, they stoned another. So the landowner said, all right, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, verse 38, they said among themselves, hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to these guys? Their response, verse 41, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. And Jesus said to them, verse 42, have you never read? And this is Psalm 118. This is the psalm from which they were chanting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, in the earlier verses of that psalm, it also says this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's the stone which the builders rejected. Verse 45, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking to them. Really perceptive guys. I mean, you're talking about us, aren't you? And they sought to lay hands on him. But in chapter 22, verse 1, the Lord told them a third parable. He said this, Well, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. You remember he invited all of his friends and family and nobody would come. They all had excuses. So he sent his servants to the highways and the byways and he told them, he said, look, invite anybody who wants to show up. And they did. And the result of that, verse 10, the hall was filled with dinner guests, just not the ones who were originally invited. Verse 15, and the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they don't like his stories. So following these three stories, they come back. And they proceed to ask him three questions. All right, we don't like his stories. we we'll give a couple of questions, tricky ones. I'm going to trap him. I'm going to embarrass him. Maybe get him in trouble with the Romans. So verse 16, I need Pastor Brian to give one of his wah-wah-ha comments, right? I can't do that. All right. Uh, Verse 16, the first question concerns whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. Hot political issue. This divides everybody. If Jesus says, sure, pay your taxes, well, he's going to lose the support of the most conservative people in the nation. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, now the Romans got him in trouble. Great question. We're going to get him on this one. But the Lord is so wise. He says, all right, show me the money. Whose image and inscription is on this? Well, Caesar's. Okay. Well, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He never really answers the question. Second question, verse 23. Sadducees. We'll have a crack at it. They're going to ask him a question about resurrection. They don't believe in resurrection. So this is not a political question. Now it's a theological question. They tell him the story of a woman who marries a man. The man dies. His brother marries the woman. He dies. In fact, seven brothers. I don't know what else they're doing, but they successively marry the same poor woman and they all die. This woman's had seven funerals to go to. And the question then is this All right, in heaven, whose wife will she be? I mean, how ridiculous! is the resurrection, when you consider the difficulties this is going to cause in heaven. But the Lord's response was this. Hey, you guys, you don't know the Scriptures, do you? Because in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Got him. Third question. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, an expert in the law, Asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now they're going to throw a legal question at him. And our Lord's response to that was such that they were silenced again. So, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question in return. So I got one for you guys. His question was, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Uh, They said to him, well, he's David's son. Okay, he said, now if that's true, then why does David call his son his Lord? And in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. I mean, they're done with that tactic. They they got egg all over their faces. They're walking away. You can see that Matthew is presenting here the reaction that people gave to his authority as the king. Some will recognize him. Some will take him at face value. Others will resist and question and complain. And so our Lord in chapter 23 launches now into a pronouncement of eight woes as a rebuke to those religious hypocritical leaders. There's eight verses beginning in verse 13 that begin with, Woe to you. And at the end of it, verses 37 to 39, you have, I think, one of the most pathetic statements in all of Scripture, and I'll end here today. Our Lord says to this capital city of Judah, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. He was my wish for you. Here's what I wanted for you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house, now it's left to you desolate. And it is to this very day. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say what was said when I came to you on that donkey until you will say as the children did, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he is pointing far ahead to a day that has not yet come. That the prophet Zechariah spoke about when there'll be a national believing response of Israel. Chapters 12 and 13 of his prophecy. We talked about this in the book of Revelation. In that day, finally, the nation of Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, it's a serious thing to reject the light of Scripture. Friends, how privileged we are When you think of all the people on the face of the earth today who never one time have been in a worship service like this, who have never seen one page of Scripture, when you think of how many millions of people in the history of the world who've been cut off without ever responding to Christ, some of them cut off at far earlier ages than you and I have reached. Why the goodness of God to me? Why the greatness? Why the blessing of the Lord that gives us this this light of truth? And the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. How amazing that so many of us here have truly confessed Him as our Lord. That we know who He is. We know what He did. My friends, it is the goodness of the Lord that has brought us into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you are not in the kingdom, today is another opportunity for you to confess Him, to come to Him, to make Him the Lord of your life. Do not reject the light of the truth for one more day, because you are not guaranteed another breath. Shall we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that gives us light. For your Son, who is the living word. For the revelation of your Son in the Gospel of Matthew. How thankful we are for this, and we pray that you would bless And strengthen us as your people as we go through this gospel together. May we enjoy it. May we drink it in. May we learn. May we grow. For anyone who has not accepted him as the king, may they come to that position in their life. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.